Let's turn back to the book of Lamentations together. If you're just joining us, uh, I've started a verse-by-verse study of Lamentations. It's a little teeny tiny book stuck in the middle of your Bible between uh, two of the massive redwood prophets, um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And uh, Lamentations is really unlike any book in the Bible. Um, You know, the prophets all kind of are, are similar in how they sound and work and the narrative portions, the story portions of Scripture are similar. Lamentations is unique in that it's really the only book in the Bible that's a funeral message. It's a funeral uh, account. And um, in in this day and age, one of the things that uh, was popular in the culture is that when there was great grief, someone dies, some tragedy or whatever, often a, uh, a document was drafted called a dirge or a we could think of it as a funeral sermon a funeral message uh, often written in poetry uh, to reflect the emotion of the loss and um, and that was designed uh, as a means of uh, grieving and mourning and lamenting uh, over the loss of that loved one and so we have in our bibles five chapters of a divinely inspired lament and in this case, it's not a person that's died. Uh, who, who has died, so to speak, that the message is about? Yeah, it's, the, it's the Jerusalem. It's the, it's the capital city of the southern kingdom, the, the most holy uh, location if you're an Israelite, because that's where the temple sat. That's the Temple Mount. Uh, that is uh, the sanctuary. And, uh, of course, all of that came to an end. Uh, with the Babylonian captivity. You'll remember, uh, talk to me here, why is there a Babylonian captivity? Why would God do that to His people? For their sin, that's right. Thank you, Roger. Good morning. Man. Well, He showed up ready, locked and loaded, Roger. It's awesome, yeah. Uh, Just in time. Okay, someone else? Yeah, idolatry. They've walked away from God. Because he's, true to his promises. he's true to His promises, right? You know, if you do this, this is going to happen, right? Um, yeah, and so God has been reminding, uh, giving grace, being patient, warning for decades. Um, and if you want to look at it in one sense, even centuries. And, and now uh, the time has finally come where um, God's discipline, God's judgment has arrived. And um, so we've, we've looked at a couple of uh, uh, points here. Uh, the background of the book, uh, Jeremiah, who's writing uh, as the author, and he's writing this account of uh, his sorrow, the people's sorrow. What's interesting, and, and uh, are you reading Lamentations? I hope you're reading it just to familiarize yourself with the book. One of the things you have to do, and I, was gonna, I should have mentioned this last week, but uh, one of the things you have to do is recognize sometimes Jeremiah is speaking for himself, his own sorrow, his own perspective. Sometimes he's speaking as a representative of the nation of Israel. So you have to kind of look at the context when he's saying we and I. Is he talking about Jeremiah personally, just his personal grief, his personal perspective? Or is it is it I, we, sort of corporately, he's speaking for the whole nation? And largely a lot of chapter 1, uh, he's speaking in a more corporate fashion. And then there are parts where you can see he's speaking more just for it from himself. But that's one of the things you have to do as you're reading through the book. But um, So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about one of the themes that we see in the book of Jeremiah. And uh, this is one of the things we have to wrestle with. It's not a pleasant topic, 
but it's it's right before us here in Lamentations, and that is the reality of divine discipline. Divine discipline. Um, if you look with me at chapter 1, verse 5, uh, remember that this, this whole book is about lamenting and grieving and mourning and sorrow because the nation has been attacked, the walls have been penetrated, and, uh, and finally, the city of Jerusalem has fallen. The Babylonians have invaded. They are destroying everything. They are killing people. They are taking others back to captivity. Um, the, the temple is destroyed. Uh, we'll read um, about them taking uh, vessels and things away. If you, if you read, uh, actually, if you read the book of Jeremiah alongside of Lamentations, you get a lot of background information. We'll look a little bit at Jeremiah. Um, but I was just reading in Jeremiah this last week in my Bible reading plan um, about how they, they ransacked the temple. So they're taking everything, you know, bronze utensils, gold utensils, cups, uh, serving, all these sorts of things. They're taking back to Babylon. And then we remember, of course, in the book of Daniel when Belshazzar has his famous feast, uh, some of those things come out. Um, look with me at chapter 1, verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. Why? For the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones even have gone away as captives before the adversary. So right out of the, the beginning chapter here, we recognize that this, this tragedy of devastation happening in Jerusalem, the Babylonian captivity, the destruction, the death, the exile... Um, the, the temple being destroyed. All of that is a result of whose actions? Ultimately, it's God's actions, isn't it? Right? God, it says right here, the Lord has caused this grief. God has done this. You, you say, well, the Babylonians were his agents. That's true. Um, but um, what we see here is that God has done this, and, and that, that puts the issue of divine discipline on center stage. So I'm just going to talk to you about this, because this is one of the things we don't talk about much, and I think a lot of times as believers, uh, we don't always think rightly about God's disciplinary action when we are living in sin and walking in sin as His people. So um, if you're in Lamentations, just back up a few pages uh, into the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 3. I want to uh, introduce our I want to introduce our topic of divine discipline before we get to lamentations, kind of get a running start by looking at two texts that give us more directive information about God's discipline. And then what we'll do is we'll come back to lamentations and we'll see how lamentations is demonstrating in an actual situation what we've learned from these other passages. So Proverbs chapter 3, uh, Solomon is sitting down with his boys. This is a book largely about a dad sitting down with his children, uh, teaching them, training them uh, in the things of the Lord. Uh, this is that wonderful passage that talks about trust in the Lord with all your heart do not lean on your own understanding we know that Proverbs 3 5 and then a few verses down uh, in verse 11 God or uh, Solomon says this to his children about God verse 11 my son do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof for whom the Lord loves he reproves even as a, as a father corrects the son 
in whom he delights. Uh, this is one of the first places where we get explicit teaching on this topic of divine discipline. Obviously, from, from Genesis up to Proverbs, there's plenty of instances of divine discipline, and God talks about that. But this is, this is in more of a, of a teaching fashion. Solomon is training his children, saying, look, this is how things are going to be, and when God disciplines you, don't, don't loathe it, don't run from it, appreciate it because it is for your good as an act of love. So on your notes there, uh, divine discipline is, first of all, not to be rejected or loathed. We see that there in verse 11. Now, I don't know about you, uh, when, when uh, our kids were younger and when discipline took a more simple form, um, I can't ever remember one of my children saying, wow, Dad, this is great, let's do it again. Um, I do remember a particular instance when a child that will remain nameless to keep the guilty from being known, um, said in the midst of discipline, uh, Daddy, you're hurting God's creation. <laughs> they will use the theology you teach them against you. They will. Okay. And you know what? When, when we were young, we probably didn't appreciate discipline either. And uh, now remember the the word the Hebrew word here for discipline musar, it, it, at its core it means training. So it's not it's not just a sort of divine spanking or something like that, right? It it is punitive, and it does involve the uh, measured, appropriate infliction of pain in order to uh, promote correction, right? That that it does include that idea, but in the broader sense, musar, uh, uh, usually translated discipline, means training. The goal here is to help children learn skills, learn morality, learn that it means to walk with God, learn a better way to handle it. And so that's why it's a theme of Proverbs, because Proverbs is all about training children, right? So what, what Psalm is saying here is that, you know what, uh, the Lord is also interested in training us as our divine parents, so to speak. And um, like our children, like you and I when we were younger, we don't usually appreciate discipline. In fact, we, we might try to avoid it. We, we might get upset about it. But um, actually, Solomon says to his sons, listen, son, um, don't loathe it. Don't run from it. Don't, don't, don't reject it because there is a good purpose behind it. And, and that's our next verse there. It is an expression of love, isn't it? For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Uh, you know, the, a lot of us said something to our children like, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No child believes that in the moment. Um, but, and again, if you're an experienced parent, you understand this. If you're not a parent yet, you don't understand it. But if you're a parent one day, you will. Is that 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 training even when it takes the form of punishment you're doing that because you delight in your child you love them and you want to see them walk with god you want to see them make better choices you want to see them reflect the character of christ in all of their ways and, uh, and obviously, you know, discipline can be done for all sorts of wrong reasons and bad reasons, 
But when it's done in a biblical sense, it's an act of love that expresses the delight of the parent in the child, even though pain is being inflicted as a means of training. And um, so, so this is hard to remember because, you know, when you're on the parent's side, it's okay, yeah, 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 you know. But when you're on the child's side, it's not as easy to remember that perspective. And that's why Solomon is saying this to his children. He's saying, remember that this is an act of love. This is an act of your father that delights in you and wants you to share in his holiness. And that, that's, our, that's really our other passage. If you're listening to, to Proverbs chapter 3, you're thinking, this sounds really familiar. Yeah, it is because the author of Hebrews, all the way on the other end of your Bible, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, borrows this verse as uh, the writer is talking about Jesus. And uh, this is you know the joy set before him. He endured the cross and uh, setting aside every encumbrance and, and fixing our eyes on him. You remember that passage. And then he turns the corner... And he talks about not growing weary in doing good, not growing weary in walking with God even though there is hostility and persecution and trial. You remember what's going on in this first century as the writer is writing to these Jewish Christians that are being persecuted and undergoing difficulty. And um, he reminds us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, that we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, now, looking back to Christ who... Uh, we know resisted temptation and resisted trial and persecution in that way. Um, and then he says, and this is where he brings up our verse, verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. The language is a little bit different there. Uh, this is quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament translation of Proverbs. Uh, but, but the sense is the same, right? He's saying, remember, uh, God disciplines you as an act of love in order to train you and, and to, to bring you up in that. And in a context, what's, what's interesting is what the writer to Hebrews is really doing here is he's connecting the hard things that you and I go through in life as functions of God's training program. That's one of the challenges of what he's trying to say here is we need to think about the hard things in life as actually God's spiritual gymnasium, his spiritual fitness plan to, to grow us and mature us. In fact, look where this goes. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. Remember that word means training, right? It is discipline that you endure, training that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, talking about the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then he goes on to say, then strengthen yourself for the days ahead, right? So what, what can we add to our, our list here? That divine discipline is an evidence of sonship, isn't it? It's an evidence of sonship. And, and the writer here of Hebrews says, actually it's a good thing that you're disciplined because if you're not disciplined, that probably means you're not a son. 
You're not in the family of God. So even though discipline is not pleasant, it's an evidence that you're in the family of God and you have a heavenly father who cares enough to train you and I when we need training. It's also a means of sanctification. Look back at verse 10. He says, uh, this, they, um, he disciplines us, why? So that we may share in his holiness. Remember, divine discipline, just like parental discipline, is not punitive only. It's restorative and transformative. It, it, it has three uh, points or goals for it. Yes, it, it's, you know, you did the crime, you do the time, right? There, there's a punitive aspect of just consequences. But it's also restorative. It's designed to bring that child back under submission to his father and mother the same way God's discipline is designed to bring us back under God's instructions in God's way. So it's restorative, it's punitive, it's restorative, but most importantly, it's transformative. And that's what the writer is talking about here. The goal is training. The goal is not just you did the crime, you do the time. The goal is to become like Christ, to share in God's very holiness. Which is why Solomon says, don't reject it, don't loathe it. If we reject and loathe God's discipline, we're rejecting the very tool that God is using to make us like His Son. So the more we reject that, the less what? We become like Christ, right? So it's, it's an evidence of sonship, it's a means of sanctification, and then uh, as every parent knows, in the moment, it's not joyful, it's sorrowful. But, and then here's the phrase, afterward, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That, that, that's a good footnote if, if you're a parent, and, and maybe if your children are younger. Um, I remember before I was a parent that I thought... Um, you know, kid does the wrong thing, mom and dad discipline, kid's back to normal. You know, you just apply and transformation. And then real parenting goes like this. You apply and they're more angry. You apply and they do it again. And that's why this verse is important both, you know, it's thinking mainly about divine discipline and our transformation but I think, you know, looking at human parental discipline is the same. And that is, you've got to remember the afterward. Sanctification is not, zap, I become like Jesus, right? It's progressive. It's little by little. Sanctification takes time. Training takes time. When you're training your children in the home, that discipline is progressive and cumulative. The afterward might be months, years later, right? Before you see fruit come from that training. It's not instantaneous. And that's true in sanctification as well. As God trains us, it's not like tomorrow I'm perfectly like Jesus. It's little by little He trains and guides and corrects and leads and guides and corrects, disciplines, trains, corrects. And over time, you and I look up and say, wow, it's been months, it's been years, but I look more like Christ today than I did back then. So it's a progressive work and it takes time. Um, so that, that's getting a little bit beyond here, but I think that's a good encouragement for us to remember. So... What does this have to do with Lamentations? In Lamentations, if we want to come back uh, now to the book of Lamentations, in Lamentations, God's judgment serves a dual corporate purpose. And we have to think about both of these, including the reality of divine discipline when we think about Lamentations. Okay, so let's turn back there. What are those two purposes? What are those two purposes? Well, we're going to see these today. 
Purpose number one is God is going to bring in the Babylonians as a judgment and punishment to those Israelites who failed to repent. This is the indictment part of God's work. We recognize that uh, as we've read in Lamentations and Jeremiah, and we understand something of the context, that there are a lot of people living in Israel that are not believers. They're not followers of God. They're in the people of God. They're in, they're in the covenant, so to speak. But um, what happened, Ernie? Is that me or you? Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, but nonetheless, they have shown themselves to be unbelievers They've not responded to repentance. They're not responding in faith. They're not listening to God. And so this act of judgment of the Babylonian captivity is a punishment and a judgment of those in Israel who failed to repent. And that ought to sober us. That ought to sober us. Uh, the, The fact that God is not actively judging every wicked person right now is only a marvel of His patience and mercy. Because the reality is that's what we all deserve. Um, and so we see that this, this moment, this book is reflecting the fact that um, this is God's judgment on those who have failed to repent. And yet, and yet, there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. We've seen that in Jeremiah. We've, we saw it in Isaiah. For those of you that were in the Isaiah class years ago, we, we've seen it promised from the very beginning of the book of Genesis and the nation of Israel. That there's always going to be a pocket of believers that even when Israel gets really, really dark in disobedience, there's always going to be a small pocket of believers that are preserved to the end. And so in that sense, lamentation, the judgment that, that happens there is a uh, an act of discipline for God's people, true believers, and yet acting in disobedience. And yet that discipline is designed to preserve a remnant of true believers. And, and think about this. What happens when the Babylonians come in? What do they do? They kill people and break things, right? It's just boom, right? What else do they do? What's that? They take people back. Why would they do that? Yeah, from their end, they're thinking easy labor, right? Remember uh, Daniel, right, and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They, They went and found, you know, the the jocks at the Jerusalem high school. You know, the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the academics and, and the, the sports heroes, the guys that were fit and, and uh, smart and capable and good looking. And they're like, hey, we're going we're gonna to take these back and use these wonderful, gifted, handsome young guys to serve in the king's court. And that's where Daniel and his friends got, got caught up in that. Uh, do you remember what happens to Jeremiah himself? What happens, Grant? Well, that, yeah, that happened for uh, that, uh, one of the uh, kings of Judah, one of the wicked kings of Judah did that. But do you remember what, when, when Babylon comes in, what do they do with Jeremiah? This is really fascinating. You need to go back and read it in Jeremiah. What's that? So, so here's what, yeah, you guys are remembering part of the story, but, but that, wasn't, that wasn't like when it came, when the Babylonians came in. They come in and the Babylonians say, um, uh, we've heard that you've been talking about us coming. And we know, in some measure, that uh, your God has prophesied this. And that's why this has happened. So, um, 
we're going to protect you. And you go, really? Uh, it's fat. Go back and read the end of the book of Jeremiah. You can read about that. And uh, and yes, there were efforts to kill him, and there was you know the cistern part, and you know he almost dies several times. But the Babylonians in the end actually preserve him and take care of him. And remember, they give him the choice: you can come back to Babylon, and we'll take care of you. You can stay here, and we'll make sure you're taken care of. And of course, he chooses to stay. Um, but uh, it's it's fascinating. You say, how does that happen? Answer, God is preserving his remnant, isn't he? He's reserving, he's preserving his people. So when we come back to Lamentations, we have to remember that God's act of judgment serves two purposes, to punish those who fail to repent and yet to discipline and preserve a remnant of true believers. And those, that remnant is represented by many of the exiles that go back to Babylon and some people that stay in Jerusalem like Jeremiah, uh, whose life was spared. Okay, look at chapter 1, verse 5. And I just want to, I want to give you some phraseology to think about here, um, because this is, this is hard, this is a hard subject to get our minds around. Chapter 1, verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper. Why? For the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. You say, what's that? That's good grief, isn't it? It's good grief. Why is it good grief? Because God is bringing punishment and consequences and discipline. Why? To bring a grief over their sin. Jeremiah has preached daily to these people for over 40 years and they would not listen. And so God says, okay, And God brought about painful things to move them to a place of godly grief over their sins. And as you read the book of Lamentations, look for that. Look for how you see a connection between the, the infliction of pain on the Israelites and their, their grief over their sin. That's what it's for. God's not inflicting because he's like, oh, I just, you know, I want to make their life miserable. That infliction of pain is a calculated parenting effort to bring a sort of godly grief that brings a repentance over their sin. Just like when a godly mom and dad discipline their child, the infliction of that pain is, is not random or haphazard. It's not... It's not a, an act of reactionary frustration. It's a calculated moment of parental love designed to bring a godly grief over the sin as a means of producing repentance. Do you see that? So this is a godly grief. And, and, and I say that because we have to have a category in life because we don't do this well. Usually when something happens and we feel bad or grieve, we want to fix it right away. We want to run away from that. We want to see all grief as something to avoid. And if I get stuck with it in some way, I want to relieve that grief and fix that grief and, and uh, remove that grief as quick as possible. Uh, it's interesting, um, one of my favorite books on grief, uh, a man named John Flavel, an old English Puritan. He, um, he was a pastor on one of the coastal ports in uh, England in the 1600s, and uh, because his church was right there at a seaport, he had a significant 
ministry to um, uh, people serving in ships, civilian uh, commerce, but also to the Royal Navy. And in fact, he wrote sermons with all these nautical Navy analogies and illustrations. And it's really interesting. Uh, uh, a century later, John Newton, uh, the hymn writer and, and slave trader who captained ships, he found Flavel's writings and it connected with him because you know, Flavel was speaking his language by putting spiritual truth in nautical terms. Uh, but anyway, so John Flavel wrote uh, a book on grief. He lost um, uh, one, one wife and a bunch of children and... And, um, and as he, he actually picked up his pen to write to a family that had just lost a child. And one of the first things he says is this. We should not try to escape or remove ourselves from grief until we are certain that we have learned and achieved all that God has for us in it. That was his lead-off point. And I thought, what planet are you from? I mean, who thinks like that? And yet that's exactly what God is demonstrating for us in Lamentations. This is a good grief that God is bringing, which is purposeful to the end that there might be repentance. So when you and I go through things that bring grief, let's take a moment at least and say, Is God bringing this grief for a purpose? What am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to respond? And and, and like Flavel reminds us, let's not run away from the grief or try to fix the grief until we have benefited from all that God has for us in it. And we can see that uh, demonstrated here. Notice, secondly, that there is an intentional infliction of pain that is a function of divine discipline. Chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing... To all you who pass this way, look and see, Jeremiah writes, if there is any pain like my pain, representing the nation. Is there any pain like this, Jeremiah says, which was severely dealt out to me, look at this, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. See, God did this. God is inflicting pain. God is the one bringing about discipline. And again, that that pain is purposeful, isn't it? It's redemptive. It's it's useful. It's it's a good pain. And again, we, we don't think like this typically, but whether it's grief or pain, we need to ask ourselves the question, how is this grief or pain that God has brought into my life, how is it designed for my good? How is it designed for my holiness, for my repentance, for my leaning on Him more? You know, let's not waste our pain until we've achieved what God has for us through it. Notice thirdly that God is righteous in His judgment. Look down at verse 18. We, we noted this last time as as. Jeremiah laments the city, the destruction, the little ones that are scattered and killed and the captives being taken away and the pain, the discomfort, the severity, uh, all of that leading up to verse 18. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous for I have rebelled against His command. Um, What's he saying? God is not wrong when He inflicts pain and grief on his people. 
It hurts. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. And we are tempted to believe that God should not be doing this, right? You struggle with that like I struggle with that. And Jeremiah reminds us right smack dab in the middle of of the graphic horror of what's happening in 586 with the burning and destruction of Jerusalem that the Lord is righteous in His ways. That's what the psalm says, right? He's righteous in all His ways. He's kind in all His deeds. So we, we have to have a category that says God inflicts punishment and grief and discipline, but He's right to do that. As Proverbs reminds us, as Hebrews reminds us, it's actually a function of his loving parental care um, that we might share in his holiness. So let's talk about that. We've got to pull the car over for a minute here and talk just briefly about the Lord's righteous anger because this is not an attribute of God that we talk much about. Uh, We're more apt to talk about his mercy, his grace, his love, and, and those are great attributes. But we have to talk about those attributes alongside of more severe attributes. And maybe you're even thinking, how can, how can anger and wrath coexist with mercy and grace? Maybe you struggle with that. Well, that's why I want to stop and just talk, talk you through some of this, okay? First of all, we see that anger is a theme in the book of Lamentations, right? It's all over the book of Lamentations. We'll just look at a couple of verses here. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, look and see if there's any pain like my pain, Jeremiah says, which was severe, severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in His anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. Verse 2. In His wrath He has thrown down the strongholds Uh, of the daughter of Judah. Verse 3, In fierce anger he has cut off all the strength of Israel. So it's very clear that Jeremiah is saying it is God's anger and wrath that in part is motivating what is happening here. And we say, wait a minute, I thought this was parental love. I thought this was so he can share in his holiness. What's going on here? Well, let's back up a minute. First of all, we need to remember that God's anger is calculated and objective. It's not a reaction born out of frustration. When you and I typically get angry, it's because something, we're just sick of something, right? It's the Crescent train. It's my kid that, you know, didn't listen three times and I told him what to do. It's, it's the, I get to the end of the month and, and I'm still in debt and I haven't paid off that debt, right? And I just get irritated and frustrated. In our experience, anger is usually a function of frustration and irritation and loss of patience. And that's in part why we're tempted to believe wrong things about God's anger. Because God's anger is never like that. God's anger is a calculated, objective function of His attributes. For example, Romans, you don't need to turn to Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, there's this calculated revealing of God's wrath. Why? Because men and women are rejecting their God. It's, it's, a, it's a purposeful response to a breaking of God's law. Um, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son, what? Will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, it's a, it's a calculated, objective reality. It's not God flying off uh, the handle uh, because he's, he's tired of something that's irritating him. 
Okay, it's calculated and objective. Secondly, God's anger is a function of His goodness, His righteousness, His holiness. You say, where did you get that? Well, it's a function of His goodness, His righteousness, His holiness because God is responding with displeasure when His holy standards are being broken by His people. That's how it's a function of his, His goodness, His holiness, His righteousness, because His standards are being broken. And if those standards mean something, if goodness means something, then God cannot be indifferent to violations of His holiness. But just as they are, as divine anger is an expression of displeasure driven by His holiness, notice what we're seeing here. That anger is used to bring about holiness in people too, isn't it? So anger is a, is a violation of His holiness, but that anger is expressed in a way through divine discipline designed to bring about holiness in God's people. And that's one of the ways that uh, anger works with God's parental care as well. You know, and, and we do this as parents, right? Um, and we can talk about righteous anger and, and human anger, and usually our anger is not righteous anger, and we'll talk about that But one of the things that that we have to agree on is that if we're going to discipline our children, it's because we've made an evaluation about what they're doing and we've found it to be lacking or wrong in some way. And that displeasure of breaking God's law is what motivates us to discipline. So it does work similarly even on a parental level. On your notes there, it is a just and appropriate response to all things contrary to His character, including wickedness, sin, and evil. Thus, God's anger is righteous and not sinful, right? Um, James talks about the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God in contrast to God's anger, right? Which always achieves His righteous purposes. Um, uh, Psalm 2, talking about uh, the sun, right? And uh, the wrath of the sun being kindled in judgment one day. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him, right? So we recognize that, that God's anger is righteous and good and holy. It's a function of His holiness. His righteousness is goodness. And His, right, his, his uh, holy anger is not inconsistent with His grace and His mercy and His patience. I, I, I do want to show you this just briefly. Uh, if you want to look over at Second Peter. Um, Peter is writing to persecuted Christians. And these persecuted Christians are under the Neronian persecution, the Roman persecution. They are being assaulted. They're brand new in their faith. Christianity is really new. And uh, they are saying, how long is this going to happen? These persecuted first century Christians. And Peter writes to them, and he says something really interesting about the timing. Why is not God, why, Jesus, why is Jesus not coming back yet? Why is he not stopping this wickedness? Why is he not bringing an end to the persecution? Chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes this. The Lord is not slow about his promise. You say, what's the promise? The promise that he's going to return and right every wrong. The Lord's not slow about that, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You say, what does that mean? If God were only to act on His justice and anger and righteousness, none of us would be here. Because we come into the world fallen and sinful and rejecting God, God punishes, you have one generation humanity, the end. 
But what Peter is saying is God's patience and grace work with his holiness and his anger. God's anger, his wrath, his judgment is coming. His patience and mercy cause him to hold back the demonstration of that anger and the fulfilling of that judgment. Why? Because God is giving people time to repent. So you see that? God's kindness and grace and mercy are not at odds with His holiness and anger and wrath. They work together. God's wrath is coming. His judgment is coming. And that's a right and good thing to do. His mercy and grace and patience cause Him to delay the unfolding of that wrath and judgment to give people like you and me time to repent. Paul makes the same argument in Romans chapter 2. His kindness, his forbearance, and patience hold back the wrath of God to give people time to repent. And so that, that's how the Bible is going to help us to connect these two attributes that don't seem to go together. How does anger go together with mercy? That's how. Anger means judgment is coming. Mercy means the uh, infliction of that judgment is delayed again, to give people time to repent. Does that make sense? So that, that's how they, they coincide. And uh, In fact, one of God's attributes is that He's slow to anger, right? He's patient. He, he doesn't fly off the handle. He, he doesn't get frustrated and just, you know, lightning bolt from heaven kind of thing. It's, it's calculated, and with His mercy, with His wisdom, with His patience, it's delayed until the proper time. We see in the Gospels, Jesus was righteously angry. Not very often. You know, Jesus was not an angry guy. Um, but there were a couple of occasions where he expressed righteous anger. We can think about the money changers uh, situation. We can think about when uh, the Pharisees were reluctant to let Jesus heal on the Sabbath. And, and, and the Bible says Jesus was righteously angry at their lack of care for people. Um, not, not a personal anger, but an anger aroused from the breaking of God's law and a lack of compassion toward God's people. Okay? We've got to land right here, guys. I do want you to turn just one more place to Ezekiel, just past Lamentations, to Ezekiel chapter 33. Because when we think about God's righteous anger and His wrath and His judgment, His discipline, we can get the wrong idea of the nature and character of God when we read about destruction and judgment. You know, why, why, would, he, why would He destroy His temple, His people, His sanctuary, His city, the Temple Mount? Why, why would He do that? The little ones starving and being slayed in the streets. We, how, how can that be good and right? Well, listen to what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel is writing largely to prepare the people for the same events that Jeremiah, start, that Jeremiah talks about. You know these verses. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of transgression. And he goes on to talk about what's going to happen. But this is important, guys. What is the heart of God even in wrath, judgment, righteous anger? This is the heart of God, isn't it? God does not delight in the destruction of people. He doesn't delight in the punishment of evildoers. But he, he says, 
repent and live, right? That's much better. That, that, that's, that's what he would want. And that parallels what Paul's going to say to Timothy, right? It's good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay? So if you struggle with God's wrath, God's anger, His discipline, His judgment, His mercy, His patience, His grace, we reconcile those as the text tells us and we remember that the heart of God is one of um, not finding delight, not finding pleasure in the death, in the, in the death of the wicked, in the punishment of the wicked, but much rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are right and good and righteous and, and holy and that you're not indifferent to what's wrong in the world and evil and wicked and that you express a holy anger, a, a righteous wrath against all that is wrong. And, and we, we know that's right. We, we know it's right to hate evil and wickedness. And yet we thank you that in your mercy and grace and kindness, uh, you direct that wrath, you delay that wrath to give people time to repent, time to, to turn to you, and that you're not fast to anger, you're slow to anger. Lord, thank you. Uh, your character is, is overwhelming and amazing. But we thank you that you don't delight in the death of wicked people, but you would rather to see them repent and come to you. Father, I pray as, as we experience your training, your discipline, in life, that we wouldn't loathe it or reject it, but we would see it as a function of your fatherly hand that we might share in your holiness. Uh, Lord, open our eyes to the good that you're doing, even in the hard things, and, and might, we, might we not wish for better circumstances uh, until we have fully learned and been trained by what you have for us. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for Mr. Jeremiah, what he's teaching us. Thank you for your work and your love and your care for us that we might be like your son, we pray in his name. Amen.